0: Well now, if those children who are going to Sunday school could go with their teachers, please, at this point. And please could the rest of us find in our Bibles 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to read uh, from verse 14, although the the verses we're going to be focusing on this, this morning are from... Verse uh, second half of verse 16 to chapter 7, verse 1. But we'll read from verse 14. So this is on page 1148 in the church Bibles. The Apostle Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out. From their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So please do keep your uh, Bible open. And uh, we'll just now come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for all that we've been able to think about already this morning and for the way we've been instructed by your word and for the way that we've been able to sing your praises and the way we've been able to talk with you. And now we pray, please, that you will speak to us through your word. Please help me to declare your word accurately and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And please, Father, speak to us all and help us all to grow in our knowledge and love of you. And any that don't know you yet, please draw them to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the verses that we're thinking about today, we're thinking about verses 4, second half of verse 16. Through to um, chapter 7 and verse 1. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks about the blessings which God promises to those who obey his call not to enter into wrong partnerships with those who are unbelievers. The immediate context of the verses that we're thinking about is what Paul has been saying in verses 14 through to the first half of verse 16. In these verses, he's been saying to the believers that they should not be unequally yoked with those who are not believers. In other words, they should not enter into a partnership with those who do not belong to Christ. Not saying that you should have nothing to do with unbelievers, because then we'd have to leave this world. But he's saying that we should not enter into close partnership, maybe something like a business relationship, or a, a, a team, teamwork with, with somebody for spiritual purposes, or uh, we should not uh, deliberately enter into marriage with somebody who is not a believer. And uh, in order to make his point, Paul asks a series of, of what are known as rhetorical questions in verses fourteen through to the first half of verse sixteen. And we were thinking about these last week. And these verses show how it is impossible. For there to be any real unity between a Christian and a non-Christian, uh, so he says, verse fourteen: What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Well, the answer is none at all. The Christian stands for the one for, for righteousness; the unbeliever. Stands for lawlessness. They're two poles apart. Of course they can not be united. What fellowship has light with darkness? Well, none at all. The Christian stands for the light. Is in the light and, and, and belongs to the light. But the unbeliever belongs to the darkness. Well, there can be no union, no partnership, no fellowship between light and darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial? Well, none at all. Christ is the eternal son of God. He's totally pure and totally righteous. Belial, the devil, is absolutely, totally against what is righteous and good. The Christian belongs to Christ. The non-Christian belongs to the devil. There can be no union between them. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The believer is heading for heaven. The believer has got the holy spirit the believer uh, is is forgiven for all of his sins he belongs to Christ and has everything that is in Christ the unbeliever has no part of that he doesn't belong to Christ at all he he's on his way. he is alienated from god he's on his way to hell what agreement has the temple of god with idols well, of course there can be no union between the, temp, the, the believer whose body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and the unbeliever whose body is a temple of idols. And so Paul is saying, don't even try to enter a partnership with someone who is not a believer because you're, you're trying to join complete opposites. It cannot happen. And then he then goes on to back up what he said by quoting a number of promises from the Old Testament in the second half of verse 16 through to 18. And it's these promises I want us to think about this morning. I said last time I didn't really feel I could do justice to them last time because to really properly do justice to them we need to go back and see what's being said in the context. And I knew we wouldn't have time for that. Last time, so I want us to focus on these promises this morning and to see uh, what the apostle uh, is is communicating as he as he as he quotes these promises from the old testament and then uh, we then go he then goes on in in the, in the first verse of chapter seven to draw out the implications of these promises and and to show that these promises not only imply that we should not get into a wrong partnership with an unbeliever, but also they show us that we should, as Christians, we should seek to cleanse ourselves from everything which is going to hinder our relationship with God, from every sin, every defilement that's going to um, stop us from knowing God as we should and serving him as we should. So... um We'll start then by thinking about the promises and and then we'll go on to consider that application um, that Paul makes towards the end. So as we think about these promises that we've got there in the second half of verse 16 through to verse 18, we see that there are actually three promises that are spoken about. First of all, God promises that he will... Uh, that God will make his dwelling among his people that, and that, 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 that he will be their God and they will be his people. Secondly, God promises, second half of verse 17, that he will welcome his people. And the third promise is in verse 18 that God will be a father to his people. And they will be his sons and his daughters. Uh, so let us then think about these three promises that we've got here in this section. And the first one is this, that God promises that he will live among his people. He'll make his presence known among his people and that he will be their God And they will be his people. Now, there are a a number of places where God uses this sort of language. Uh, I'm going to take you to uh, the first one, which is in Leviticus chapter 26. And I think this probably is the one, the the reference that Paul has in mind here as he he, uh, quotes this. So, if you want to just keep your finger in 2 Corinthians and then go back with me to Leviticus chapter 26. And this is found on page 124 in our church Bibles. Now, uh, the book of Leviticus, as many of you will know, is one of the five books that Moses wrote, And it contains in it laws which God gave to his people. Laws about sacrifices and laws also about how they were to behave when they went into the promised land. And towards the end of the book of Leviticus, God says to his people that if they will keep his laws, if they will obey him, they will know his blessings. But if they disobey him, they will experience his curses his, and his chastisement. His so uh, this verse that Paul quotes is in the part of, 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 of Leviticus where Paul where, where, sorry where Moses is speaking about the blessings of which will come to God's people if they obey him. So we'll pick up in verse 3 of Leviticus chapter 26. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field will yield their fruit. Your threshing floors will last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. Now here's the quotation I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So God promises his people under the old covenant that if they obeyed his laws, they would be blessed. Now, because it was the old covenant, they were about to go into a physical land that God had prepared for them. The blessings which God promised to them mainly were physical blessings. That they would have rain so their crops would grow. They would have abundant harvests. Uh, the land would be fruitful. They would be, they'd be delivered from their human enemies in, in battle. Uh, they would have security. They would have large families. But also, there was a spiritual blessing as well. He says, as we saw, verse 12, I will walk among you, and or verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, we who are alive today, who are believers today, we're living under a different covenant. We're living under the new covenant, which God brought into being through the Lord Jesus Christ. We've not been brought into a physical land as the people were, we've been brought into the kingdom of heaven, which is invisible. And the blessings that we enjoy under this new covenant are not physical blessings of abundant crops and and, and large families and so on. But they are the spiritual blessings of having our sins uh, forgiven and, and having peace with God and having power to overcome sin in our lives. But by quoting from this passage from Leviticus here... and and referring to it here in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is bringing out a very important principle, which is this. Quite simply, if we obey God, we will be blessed. We shall know God as our God. We shall experience his presence among us. We shall be his people. Now, somebody might object, but surely, under the new covenant, all believers know God. Surely, all are the people of God. Surely, by his, this is by grace and not by works. Does not God say in Jeremiah chapter 31, that no longer each one shall teach his neighbor, and his, brother, his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So you might say, well, how can the apostle quote here from this passage in the Old Testament which seems to be saying that being part of the people of God and knowing God as our God and knowing his presence among us depends on our obedience to him. Well, the answer to that question is as follows. Yes, indeed, under the new covenant, every true believer is one of God's people. On account of the work that Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sins. Once a person trusts in Jesus, from that moment, he belongs to God forever. God is his God. But, we also know from the scripture, and from our experience, that if we backslide, and if we allow sin to come into our lives, we're not going to know the Lord with the same closeness that we would have known him if we had obeyed him. If we allow sin to take root in our lives, that sin will come between us and God as a barrier and stop us from experiencing closeness with him. Um, now, this is taught in a number of places in the Bible, and I, I think it might be helpful if I also show you uh, James chapter 4, because this, I think, brings out this point very clearly. In James chapter, James chapter 4, we're back in the New Testament now, um, and we're, we're looking at James chapter 4, chapter, page 1201. Now, James is written to believers, to true Christians. These are the people of God. These are people who've been saved. People who who, who, uh, who, who belong to God. But a distance has come between them and God. They're not experiencing answers to prayer. They're not experiencing the goodness of God in their lives. Let's look at verse, read James 1, verse, James 4, verse 1. He says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? You see, here are the people of God, they're Christians. They belong to God. But their relationship with God has become distant. Why? Because their hearts are set on things in this world. They love this world. And so they're not experiencing the love of God in their lives. They're not experiencing the presence of God among them. God has become distant to them. They've not lost their salvation. If they were to die at this point, they'd still go to heaven. In that sense, they're still the people of God. But they're not experiencing fellowship with God. They're alienated from God. There's a distance between them and God. So what's the answer? Well, he says, it's to Repent. Verse 6, but he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Look. Your relationship with God has become threadbare. It's not what it should be. What's the answer? Well, it's, it's to seek God. It's to humble yourself and to seek God. To turn from your sin. To turn from the way, ways in which you've, you've allowed other things to, to crowd out your relationship with God. Now, probably many of us who are in this room this morning will know this From experience, any of us who've been Christians for any length of time, probably many of us will have gone through periods of backsliding. Been Christians, yes. God has still been our God, yes. We still belong to him, yes, in that sense. But have we known God really dwelling with us? Have we really known fellowship with God in those periods of backsliding? Have we really had that intimate relationship with God during that period? Answer no. Because the sin that has come into our lives has caused that barrier between God and us to to, to come in. We've not known that fellowship, that intimacy with God. And that's only ended for us when we backstay. And it's only ended for us when we have turned from that sin and got right with God afresh. And so as we come back to uh, 2 Corinthians, I think this, this sheds light on what Paul is saying here. He says, quoting from Leviticus, this promise, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There is this promise, but it is this promise to those who will, Obey God? Only then will they really know this, this God dwelling in them. Only then will they really know what it is to be the people of God and having that fellowship with God. Now then we come on to the second uh, promise in, in uh, 2 Corinthians. So if you've lost the page number, it's page 1148. The second promise is, is in verse 17. And this is very explicitly linked to uh, an exhortation. Therefore, he says, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Now, what is this? Where is this uh, a quotation from? Well, it seems that this is a quotation from Isaiah Chapter 52, and perhaps you'd like to look at that now. Isaiah 52, and this is on page uh, 728. Now, this comes from a much later period in the history of Israel. Leviticus was written before the people of Israel went into the Promised Land. Isaiah comes from the end of the period when the people of Israel were in the, in the land. And we were just about to, the, the people of Judah was about to be exiled. In fact, what had happened was that the, 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 the people of God had been split into two because of the sin of Solomon. And the northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrians and, and they had already been taken into exile. So you just got the southern kingdom of Judah. And as, I, as Isaiah was writing, that southern kingdom of Judah was itself about to be taken away. And the second half of Isaiah is anticipating that, that exile. And saying what God would say once the people were in exile. They were going to be taken away to Babylon, and God would then promise to them a period of 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 of, of blessing to them. He would bring them back to himself. And uh, he would restore uh, Zion, which is Jerusalem. He would restore it to what had been before. In fact, he would he would make it better than it was before. And so uh, God promises a time of great blessing to, to his people uh, in the future. But then he has these words, verse 11, uh, which which would be addressed to those who are in Babylon. He says, depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her and purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So here is this 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 command that the people should leave the the ungodly nation where they'd been where they to which they'd been exiled, and they should come back to the promised land. They should separate themselves from those who did not belong to God. Now, Paul quotes that. Uh, that 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 verse from from Isaiah telling the people to depart, but then he adds something else. He adds that if they will do that, they will experience the welcome of God. Now, where's that from? Well, that actually is from it seems from Ezekiel chapter forty, chapter twenty-one, and verse forty. Uh, so Ezekiel. Chapter 20, and uh, in verse uh, 41, God promises his people, page 840, As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. So by taking these two quotations together the one from Isaiah come out from them with this this promise from Ezekiel I will welcome you. Paul is saying to the believers in Corinth if they will obey what he is saying, if they will obey this command not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, if they will separate themselves from those who are not true believers, they would be welcomed by God. Now, again, somebody else might say, but surely. Under the new covenant, surely we've already been accepted by God. Surely we were made right with God through the blood of Christ. And the answer, of course, is yes, indeed. Under the new covenant, when you came when, when a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when he repents of his sins, he is welcomed by God, like the prodigal son, welcomed into the family of God, welcomed to salvation. Yes, that's true. But it is also true, isn't it, that very often, even though we have been welcomed by God, very often, we go astray. We wander off. The sheep, instead of going in those green pastures which our good shepherd has prepared for us and wishes to lead us to instead of going into those green pastures we depart from the green pastures don't we? and we go off out into the wilderness and we try and find satisfaction in the world and we experience the misery of living a life of disobedience to God but the promise of this verse is if you will return and come back the Lord will welcome you he'll receive you he won't cast you off he will welcome you as that lost sheep that returning sheep returning to the fold now here's a word of comfort to anybody who might feel that he or she has made a real mess of his or her relationship with God Maybe you are a Christian, maybe you, you came to Christ many years ago, but you've had years and years in the wilderness. You've been far from the Lord, and you've got involved in some wrong relationship which you should never got involved with, or some other sin that you should never got involved with. And this has led you way, way, way into sin and idolatry and, and all sorts of things that you should never got involved with as a Christian. But hear this, hear this promise that the apostle Paul makes here in in two Corinthians, quoting from the Old Testament. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I'll have you back. Yes, you've been disobedient. Yes, you've gone far away as a Christian. But come back. And I'll welcome you. I'll receive you. I'll bless you. I, in, in, um, in Joel, there's a beautiful saying. It's, I'll restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. There have been all those years. You've been out in the wilderness. You've, 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 you're, you're, the devil has ravaged your life. The locusts of sin have brought ruin to your life. But God will restore you. He'll welcome you. He'll have you back. Now the third promise, coming back to Second um, Corinthians, the apostle Paul ties to this exhortation to go out from their midst and to be separate from them. And it's, and it's a second promise attached to that, verse 18. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be mine sons and daughters. Do- You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, where's that from? Well, it seems that that is from uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 14. I'm giving you a nice uh, guided tour of the Old Testament today, aren't I? But hopefully you're getting a little bit of an overview and you're thinking, oh, I I must read my Bible. I must read my Old Testament some more. But so... Uh, uh, here is this this um, promise that God made to uh, to David, two Samuel chapter seven. Now, what happened here was that David had wanted to build the temple for God. Uh, the tabernacle, the, the 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 covenant of the Lord, the the ark of the covenant had been in a in a tent all this time, and. Uh, David thought, "This is not right. I'm living in a palace, and 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 the Ark of the Lord is is, is in a tent in a tabernacle. I should be building a, a, a house for God." And he told this to Nathan, and Nathan the prophet said at first, "Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Go ahead. Why don't you do that?" But then God appears to to Nathan and says, "No, David is not the man who should build this 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 temple. It should be his. It should be his son who should build it." And then there's this promise here, chapter seven, verse fourteen of two Samuel. I will be a son. I will be a father to him. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here's this promise that this one who would build the temple for uh, for for God would. Would be, God would be a father to this one, and he would be, he would be his son. Now, this, of course, primarily applies to Solomon, who, who was the one who built this temple. We also know, because it's quoted in the New Testament, uh, as applying to Jesus, and it applies to Jesus, who, who came as the, as the eternal son of God, and who, who founded the, the, the new temple, the church. But David here in 2 Corinthians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that this promise will become true for us as we obey this call of God to separate from sin. We will know God as our father. And we'll be his children. We'll be his sons and daughters. Now again somebody else might say to me, but surely we become children of God when we're born again doesn't doesn't, uh, doesn't Ephesians 1 tell us this that, that we were adopted as 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 children by God's grace Romans 8 all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God surely we became God's children when we were saved well yes indeed but just as in these other promises that are made and these other things that that that, that are quoted from from the old testament If we allow sin to come into our lives, we're not going to experience that love of God as our Father, as we might otherwise experience it. It's not that God stops loving us any anymore that when the, when the cloud comes across the sky, the sun stops shining. God still loves us. But as the cloud comes over the sky and, 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 and blocks out the sunshine, so the sin, when we, when we allow sin to come into our lives, it blocks out the sunshine of the love of God. And we do not experience that love of God as we might otherwise have experienced it. Now, some of us have experienced this uh, in terms of natural Relationships with with a human father for some of us, I know some some have had no human father that they know of, and some they've had a father who's been abusive to them, and it's it's they they don't know anything of this. But but for some, they've had a loving relationship with their father. They've known that the father their father loves them. But when they have done something to displease the their father, that is damage the relationship. The father has become hurt. And there isn't that closeness for a period of time until the child says, I'm sorry, Dad. And then that relationship is is healed and restored. And so it is with with us, with God. When we sin, we don't stop being the children of God. We're still his children in that sense. But we do not know his love as as our father there is that that barrier that comes between us until we repent of our sin and and then and then we experience his love afresh and so then coming back then to two Corinthians, we see that the apostle quotes these these um, these promises, but they have a, but he quotes them. In such a way, it's clear that there is a condition to them, which is that we must uh, turn from, from sin. And the particular thing he talked about in this context is, is having, uh, trying to form an, uh, an ungodly partnership with somebody who is not a believer. Now, here surely is a great encouragement. To anybody who is perhaps being tempted perhaps at this very moment there might be somebody in this congregation or maybe somebody who's listening who is dallying with a wrong relationship perhaps flirting with some some wrong relationship that you should not really be getting into and perhaps you're really sorely tempted you think oh this, this young lady or this, this young man, oh, he's so attractive, he seems so nice, and I so really want to be married, and, and oh, it would be so hurtful for me, so painful for me to give up this relationship. But hear what the apostle is saying here. If you will obey God in this area, you will have something far better. Than marriage can ever be. You will have the, the blessing of knowing God living in you, his very presence in your soul, the blessing of being of knowing that God is your God. The blessing of being welcomed. By God's embrace. The blessing of knowing God as your father. So if you are, if the devil is coming to you and he's saying to you, oh look, here's this lovely relationship for you. Here's the, can't you see how nice this will be for you? Hear what the apostle is saying and know there's something far, far better. Which is the knowledge of God. And that applies not only to human you know, boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, but also other partnerships as well. Maybe you're being tempted by some business partnership. Oh, you could make loads of money. But far better than making loads of money through some wrong partnership with an unbeliever. You could have the blessing of knowing God. Or whatever other partnership you might be tempted once. Now then, just quite briefly as we come towards the end let's just look at verse chapter 7 verse 1 because having made this point about how if we will obey God in this area of of not getting involved in in a wrong partnership with an unbeliever uh, the apostle then applies it more widely he says chapter 7 verse 1 since we have these promises beloved Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So he's been talking about the danger of a wrong relationship, but now he says, he applies it more widely. He says, look, we've got these wonderful promises that if we will obey God, we will will know this God's dwelling among us. We'll know God as our God. We'll be his people. We will... Uh, we will uh, know God's welcome. We will know that God is our father. We are his children. So he says, look, we've got these wonderful promises. So then, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Bringing holiness to completion out of, in, in the fear of God. So not just in terms of wrong partnership, but get rid of every sin. See, some Christians push the doctrine, what we call the doctrine of justification by faith alone, to a wrong extreme, I don't know if that's the right word, a wrong logical conclusion. They say, oh well, as Christians we're justified, As we, once we trust in Jesus, we're justified before God, we're counted as though we've never sinned. We're righteous in God's sight. He looks upon us as being completely free from sin. And therefore, there's no danger at all of us going to hell. Now, all those things are completely true. And you've heard me preach them many, many times. I'm sure if you've been coming to the church for any length of time. But the wrong logical extrapolation from that is to say that if you sin as a Christian, God is unaware of it. Or if you sin as a Christian, it does nothing to your relationship with God doesn't harm you. That's not right. That's completely contradicted by this passage and many other passages. If you sin, it's bad for you. Very bad for you. Now I'm going to use a big word. It's the word called, which is antinomianism. That's an error. And I'll tell you what it is. It's anti-against. Nomos, which is law, anti-law. So this teaching, antinomianism, is incredibly widespread in our generation. There are lots and lots of Christians who talk about the unconditional love of God, which is true. God's love is unconditional. They talk about justification by faith alone, which we are justified. But then they say, so it doesn't matter how you live at all as a Christian. It has no impact upon you. And they, they, they say, well, there's no point in really trying to be holy because you've got no chance. You're just going to be sinful anyway for the rest of your life. So there's no point in even trying to be holy. And you're just going to have to just reconcile yourself to being a sinner for the rest of your life and then you'll become holy in that instant when you die. No. That's not the teaching of Scripture. I read earlier from 2 Peter. I won't turn you there again because we went through it at the beginning of the passage. It The teaching of Scripture is You can overcome sin and you must overcome sin as a Christian. And you should make it your aim to be 99% perfect. You're never going to be 100% perfect. Yeah, that's true. But don't be satisfied with anything less than perfection. That should be the goal as a Christian. Don't, Don't reconcile yourself to being a sinner. That's what so many Christians do in our present time. They say, oh, well, yeah, of course, we're all sinners. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I've got a terrible temper. I know I've got a terrible temper. Oh, oh, I'm have very greedy. Yeah, yeah, very lustful. Yeah, very proud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do all these things all the time. As if it doesn't matter. It does matter very much. And it's really bad for you if you allow sin to creep up on you and to overtake you. And so what Paul is saying here." Look, you've got these promises of great, tremendous blessing which will come to you, which you will experience if you will obey God. Wonderful blessings. But you need to do what you need to do to to experience those blessings properly, which is to obey God. And so he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. You see, sin does defile you. Oh, I'm justified before God. God doesn't see my sin anymore. Well, hang on, careful. Yes, as regards your eternal salvation, it's forgiven forgotten. He can't see it at all. He's blind to it. It will not be brought into, the, into account. But in terms of your everyday walk with God, are you saying God doesn't see your sin? Of course he does. And it affects your relationship with him. It defiles you. Those times when you secretly go on your computer and look at things you shouldn't look at. It defiles you. God knows about these things. And your conscience, you know in your conscience you're defiled as well. Or whatever your weak spot is, these sins defile. That secret greed, that secret lust, that secret idolatry, it defiles you. It messes you up. That bad temper, that grumpiness, whatever it is, it it messes you, it defiles you. It's a ruin for your life. And Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing Holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, here we have this fear of God again. We had it, didn't we, back in chapter 5 and verse, verse 10. Therefore, knowing, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Well, here it is again. Let us bring uh, bring holiness to completion in the fear of Of the Lord. You say, well, what have I got to be afraid of if I'm a Christian? What have I got to be afraid of if I'm going to heaven? I'm not going to be sent to hell. No, you're not. But if you don't walk with the Lord, you're not going to know that presence of God, which you might have known. You're not going to know really properly that you're one of God's people. You're not going to experience the welcome of God, the, the sunshine of his warm embrace. You're not going to know properly God as your father. There's going to be that awkwardness, that, that distance in your relationship with your father. Doesn't that, that should keep you awake at night. The thought that I'm not going to know God as I might have known him. That should concern us. Okay, you're not going to be struck down in hell, but you're not going to know what you might have known. Quite apart from the more severe disciplines that God might bring, as talked about in 1 Corinthians 11 about... You know how God can take our health from us, and how how we can even cause us to die prematurely, should He so choose. But even leaving that to one side, the thought that we might not know God as we might have known Him—that should concern us. I ask you, if you're a Christian, does it concern you? Does your relationship with God, this strength, you know, does it worry you? That you don't know God as much as you might. It should do. There should be that fear in that sense. And I say it to challenge myself. So we see then this passage, Paul widens that far more than just in terms of of a wrong partnership. He says, Look, every sin, every defilement, cleanse yourself from, that you might. Really truly know these blessings that are promised in the Scriptures. Now, of course, I, I've been speaking to us assuming that we are Christians, but maybe of course one thing you must ask yourself if 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 there's not much fear of God in your heart and and not much overcoming of sin in your heart, you must ask yourself, Have I ever been born again? Maybe you're not not even saved. Maybe you need to come to Christ urgently for salvation and call upon his name. Oh, God, I've never really known you. Come to him. Don't put it off. One day in sin outside of the salvation of Christ is a lost day, and it's a day which could result in eternal destruction. You can't afford to wait. Come to him quickly. So that you might be saved. Well, may God bless his word to our souls and may we apply it to us. Let's have a few moments of quiet where we can seek the Lord and then we'll sing our final hymn.